0: Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices.
1: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: Hello, I'm Thea Linarduzzi, Commissioning Editor at the TLS, and what you're about to listen to is a special episode of our podcast – It's part of a mini-series of discussions and debates recorded last month at our London Lit Fest, a day of literary exploration and discovery. Our normal weekly show will return on January the 5th, once the editor Stig Abel and I have emerged from a seasonal mince pie and port-induced stupor. Perhaps I'm just speaking for myself there. If you don't already know our podcast, have a listen. You'll find all previous episodes on iTunes, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our Books of the Year, from a few weeks ago, might be of particular interest for this reflective time of year. Subscribe. It's free. In the meantime, though, here's something to tide you over. 2016 was the 200th anniversary of a dark and stormy night with an extraordinary literary legacy, Frankenstein. The following discussion is a celebration of three days in June 1816 at the Villa Diodati near Lake Geneva, when a group of young writers, among them Mary Godwin, sheltered from the unseasonal weather.
3: Thank you very much for coming along. Welcome to King's Place, and welcome to the London Lit Weekend, organized by the Times Literary Supplement. I'm Michael Keynes. I'm an editor at the TLS. I'd like to introduce our speakers. I'm very pleased to be joined up here by Francis Wilson, a biographer. Uh, he also wrote really wonderful books about Harriet Wilson, the courtesan, a uh, ballad of Dorothy Wordsworth, and most recently, um, a really wonderful biography, highly recommended, The Guilty Thing, about Thomas De Quincey, which is out earlier this year, that's right. Yes. So this and uh, I'm also joined by Benjamin Markovitz, the novelist, here, whose books include um, You Don't Have to Live Like This, and a trilogy of novels that aren't uh, directly about Byron so much as we could say maybe inspired by Byron. Yeah, connected,
1: connected to him. Connected yeah. to
3: Byron. There you go. We'll talk about that in a moment. So... 1816 is an interesting year for various reasons that we're going to go into, not all of them necessarily directly connected with um, what happened in the Villa Diodati. But of course, what we're really interested in, um, the core of it, is this meeting of curious literary minds, Mary Shelley, Percy Bysshe Shelley, uh, Lord Byron, his personal physician, Dr. John Polidori, uh, Claire Claremont, who came along as well, as we're going to hear, And what happened to them? What they what they did? What they came up with up at the villa? Um, Francis, if I can begin by asking you to set the scene for us, how did they end up there? How did they all end up uh, by Lake Geneva that summer?
1: Um, They were all outcasts. They were all exiles. They were running away. Byron was literally running away. His um, his marriage of one year had broken down under sort of hair raising circumstances, and. um, his wife had um, had left the London house with their, uh, with their one-month-old baby and gone back to her parents. There were rumours of kind of sodomy in the lash. Um, he seems to have behaved absolutely appallingly, but he left in, in splendour in a coach he had built, the modelled the, on Napoleon's coach, taking with him, because it was an aristocratic thing to do, his... Um, his personal position, who he 'd not met before, this fabulously handsome young man called um, John Polidori, who was only he was only nineteen or twenty, and he just at a very young age um, graduated with a um, medical degree from Edinburgh University, having done his dissertation on sleepwalking. and um, he was a sort of fan of byron so they, so they left together Byron decided he didn 't want you know he, Byron would never return to England again so um, so he was um, he was in he was exiling himself, and he was also about to, in the act of exiling himself, turn from a good poet to a great poet. Mary uh, Mary Godwin, as she then was, was running away with Percy Shelley. She was um, eighteen. He was married. He was uh, twenty-four. He was sort of running away from his life here, from their, from her father. Um, who he, who he was in a very complicated relationship with, mainly of, sort of, 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 of give, giving money to, they took with them, well, she came with them, Claire Claremont, who was uh, Mary Godwin's half-sister. And I think she instigated the whole trip because she was having an affair with Byron and she was three months pregnant by him. And so they were a group, if you like, of, I um, see them as, as the, Ma- the Mary Shelley party, as hippies. They were um, they were setting up an alternative lifestyle here in Geneva. It's very important as well that it's Geneva. Hmm. They were at uh, uh, Geneva was a, uh, was the home of Enlightenment thinking. It was like a free state.
3: That's very so, that's a key ingredient, isn't it? And we don't necessarily always associate this with um, Geneva and Switzerland. Maybe yeah, being, private well, Swiss
1: bank accounts. Swiss bank accounts, maybe, yeah. maybe
3: you know, in more philistine minds like mine. That's maybe where we go first. But a Byron, I mean. This is obviously part of, uh, of of the exile from England that took up the rest the rest of his life, um, isn't it, Ben? And he, he just come from Waterloo, is that right? He, he, this was the next stop in his Napoleonic coach.
4: I get Francis is the one who actually knows what she's talking about here. Uh, she tells <laughs> the truth about these people, and I, I make up lies. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but Byron's exile—it's hard to work out how much of a real exile it was, and how much of a deliberate gesture it was. He's a hard figure to parse, partly because of how silly he could be, and partly because of how the opposite of silly he could be. There's this wonderful line, I think, by Disraeli about Byron, that the thing everyone always forgets is his unalloyed shrewdness. And part of his charm, both as a writer, a poet, and probably as a human being, is that his foolishness was wide enough that it forced him to learn a lot of tolerance for himself. And he could apply that tolerance to others. And so part of the puzzle of his personality is how someone who could both be the most sensible person in any room could also be the vainest, the most childish. I had a funny experience that, after I wrote my book about this summer, informed my sense of Byron. Uh, Apart from other things, I have been a very bad professional basketball player, and I spent two days in Barcelona interviewing a guy called LeBron James. I'm assuming that none of you in this audience thought you would be hearing about LeBron James <laughs> today. And one of the very funny effects of cele- he so he was at the time and still is the most famous basketball player in the world. And one of the very strange effects of celebrity is that it instantly makes you the most reasonable person in the room because everyone around you, makes unreasonable demands. And I think some of that was going on here this summer. He was a little older than the others. I think he was 28. Um, And part of what charms me about this adventure that they had is that I could imagine Shelley as a young writer complaining bitterly about Byron's fame before he meets Mm -hmm. him saying, oh, that book, you know, the Jower was overrated, and Child Harold gets worse and worse, and, <laughs> and, uh, and he's the wrong kind of aristocrat. He plays off it, and then as soon as you meet Byron, you think, and Byron says, oh, I've read your poem, Queen Mab, you have to like him.
5: Yeah.
4: <laughs> and everything gets transformed. Yeah, yeah.
3: So that first meeting, I mean, that, that's a, a key there, isn't it? The Shelleys were their first, Shelley party, rather, than their first, and Byron arrives. What, what happens? How do, how do they hit it off for right. us?
1: I think it was exactly as Ben imagined it. I think what's interesting is that um, Byron was obviously a um, very famous poet, not yet a notorious poet, but he was famous and strong and the most famous poet in Europe. And Shelley was a completely unknown poet, but possibly stronger than Byron and notorious only in a very... You know, no, no one had read Queen Mab. I don't know if Byron had read Queen Mab. He must have. Read he claims Queen Mav. he's read it. I think, yeah.
4: Yeah, and that he, he mentions it to Shelley when they meet. But maybe that's just the thing you do. I, you maybe know, it's the thing you Queen do. Mav you've got a, is, a review copy on your book side yeah, somewhere, yeah. and you say, oh. "When you I meet a poet, I, say this."
1: Then. Queen Mab, I think, had sold seven, seventy copies. that had been published in eighteen thirteen, but it was a, it was about a utopia, and in a sense, what they what they were what they were creating in Geneva was a utopia, but it was very tinged with dystopia. The writings that, um, that occurred were dystopic. I think it's important to, um, to remember that Shelley and Byron were poets before they were human beings, and this is why everyone suffered so much. This is why there was such this such crazy, electrifying, creative... Do,
4: do, do you think that's true of Byron, too? Cause it seems true of Shelley to me, but Byron, he had other ways of being a jerk than being a poet. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think...
4: But he, had a By- large of it. he had a large repertoire of... He had a large... <laughs> There's her- no
1: other scene in which Byron is ever partnered with another poet, though. He's always the only poet around real men. So, and so this is the only time we ever see Byron in the room with someone else who can talk poetry with him. They must have been friends. Tom Moore,
4: with- I guess. Tom Moore. He had some relationship with Thomas Moore. But Maybe but Thomas Moore is too lightweight for... You to too consider.
1: lightweight and too worshipful. And it must have been... Byron must have sensed... That this young, this effie poet was um, was something else.
4: Yes. I mean, so, and another thing. So, my sense, and Francis, you'll have a better sense than I do, is that even though the summer is famous for the friendship of Byron and Shelley, Byron never quite considered Shelley an inner circle guy. Yeah. He always made a distinction between his real friends, the Cambridge types that he got drunk with, and shared jokes with, and Shelley. And the, part of what interests me now is a youngish writer. Uh, is that the form their friendship took was a very writerly kind of friendship, and I think this is what you're getting at. The the friendships you form with other writers are both instantly profound and at the same time quite shallow (laughs) because they're based on this depth of engagement with the one thing, the only thing that you really care about, which is the writing. And you, you find very quickly this deep affinity that you can talk about all this stuff that you never thought you could talk about with anybody else. But because... That affinity is so isolated and separated from the rest of your life. In a funny way, you have depth without Breath. breadth, or breadth yeah. without depth. And I think that's what their friendship was like.
1: Yes, yes.
3: In a way, this uh, takes us to, we should get to the villa itself, the yes. scene setting. But that takes us there. That's not actually the, the name of the place. That wasn't the name it was known by before Byron. <sighs> takes a residence there, is it? It's mm-hmm. called, is it the Villa Belle Rive? It's a beautiful lake or something. And there's Shelley's Arms living there they're living at a nearby chalet but of course all the key action really takes place yes. at the villa especially once the weather turns yes at the heart of this, of this story as well about creation which I think we should we should talk about as, as well there's essentially there's central idea that are, as writers they are alone and sort of following their own path but at the heart of it very oddly is this kind of writing is it a competition? Uh, et- distra- you know, entertainment? What do you? What do you call it, Francis?
1: It's just one thing well. I want to say first of all, because it only dawned on me um, yesterday when I was um, thinking about this weekend again, and that's that there has to be in Shelley's and Byron's kind of washing up by Lake Leman in Geneva. There has to be a kind of parody of the lake poets here that this was the <laughs> Shelley and um, Shelley and Byron were powerfully influenced of course by Wordsworth and Byron never stopped being ironical about Wordsworth and he called them the Lakeists, and he thought it was incredibly funny that they led this sort of um, this pseudo- um, rustic life up there in the Lake District. But here they were, the second generation of poets. Doing the same thing. Doing the same thing. They were the lake poets. And, um, and of course, By- and Byron would start doing his most Wordsworthian um, canto in Child Harold 3 is where he starts talking about nature and says, you know, high mountains are a feeling, which has to be a joke. <laughs> by the way which he's sort of and,
3: and those are partly based on excursions, not with Shelley, but yes. with Polidori, aren't they? There's yes, exactly. Up the there, and writing incredible description, descriptions of it. Yes, yeah.
1: yes. And they were living, you know, living in the Wordsworthian sublime.
4: I think, that's, I think that's exactly right. And I think it, to get back to this younger writer, older writer theme, I think one of the things that Shelley thought he could sell to Byron was his appreciation of Wordsworth, yes. which is, again, a, a totally typical move. There's this famous writer that you know as a a totally unknown writer yourself and you have a deep insight to him and you meet another writer and you say you've you've undervalued this guy yeah and Byron later commented that Shelley tried to I think the phrase is physic him with Wordsworth almost to the point of nausea (laughs) (laughs) Um, and, and obviously Wordsworth is a very important writer for both of them I think Byron's the difference Byron wanted to make, the, the kind of break he wanted to make with Wordsworth was a profound one and Byron was sort of aware of what he was doing. You know, the, the, there's this, the, the famous Wordsworth line from the preface to lyrical ballads that the poet should speak in the real language of men. And for Wordsworth what that meant was a kind of simplicity, a rustic simplicity, a farm based simplicity of language and purity of language. And Byron had realized that the real language of men does not look like that. It's flavored by class apart from anything else, is flavoured by nationality, that the real language of men is shallow and full of conventionalisms and clichés.
1: Byron's poetry is much closer to speech.
4: Much closer to speech. Mm-hmm. And so he, he rises to the challenge, I think, in a way that Shelley never could, yes. to the challenge that Wordsworth sets, and he answers that challenge in his own way.
3: Um, this also puts in a new context that, that incident about reading Coleridge to, to Shelley. It's mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think that Coleridge was there in spiritual in spirit form, that Mary Shelley talks about the influence of um, the influence over them all, you know, what generated um, the writing of Frankenstein was the reading of this collection of German ghost stories that she says fell into their hands called Phantasmagoriana. I don't know about that, but I know that Byron had, um, Byron had recently instigated um, the publication, in, in, which came out in um, May 1816, of three poems by Coleridge, including. Christabel, which um, Wordsworth had refused to publish in lyrical ballads and his refusal to publish in lyrical ballads had destroyed Coleridge's belief in himself as a poet. It's a poem of the supernatural. And so Byron brought that over with him and he read it to the party at um, Villa Diodati. It's a terrifying poem. It's, um, it's incredibly creepy and strange and it's sort of lesbian vampire gothic stuff. It's, it's very hard to pin down and um, when Byron was reading it Shelley apparently became so terrified remember that he thought that Mary Shelley's, well, she wasn't, she was Mary Godwin then, her, her nipples had become eyes.
4: It's very hard to look at breasts after that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> He's, I see the whole thing, is like an album cover, a 1970s album cover <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but he became, um, he was very freaked out and hysterical about it and I think that um, it was the reading of Christabel that instigated this, um, the strange quality of writing.
3: That's really interesting. Though, that actually, Coleridge is in a way the kind of ghost behind it. the yes. Phantasmagoriana is meant to be there and in the mix somehow. But yes, was that, was, that idea? Is...
4: Was Coleridge influenced by the Jower and Christabel? Would he have been had had time to be
3: influenced by
2: the
1: first? The first. Lines of Criswell written in 1797. Okay. And so it was long before, but he, carried, he continued rewriting right. it and then a bit was added in 1800 and a bit more in 1802. So, other way around. Right. So, so
3: that also but, touches on something else we, we're coming on to as well, isn't it? Which is the digestation of these ideas that something can start a long time ago and lie in yeah. a poet's notebook for a long time and then come out. And when we're talking about this, 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 you know, uh, summer when everyone was together. That's only the beginning for these writers, young as they are. Yeah. Um, we haven't really talked about Mary Shelley yet. I mean, we talked about Byron's age. which should impress that, the, the, as you were saying bef- just before we came on, that they all, are all very young. I mean, uh, what's, what's, how's, how's Mary ended up, Mary Godwin, not yet, Mary, officially Mary Shelley, how she ended up there? And, and she describes herself as a quiet listener as well, doesn't she? Yes. What, what, what's, what's she doing there?
1: She was enthralled to, enthralled to her parents. I mean, she was strangely kind of reliving the story of her parents. I think her father was um, father was the radical philosopher William Godwin, whose um, whose writing hugely influenced her. Her mother had died a few days after giving birth to her, Mary um, Wollstonecraft. She tried to. Um, she wanted to. She wanted to be good enough for them. She want, Shelley's interest in her was very much to do with his interest in her, um, in her parents. She wanted to be good enough for Shelley. Shelley said to her when she was writing, you know, when he said to her, "You've got to write something that would, um, that you know, will make your mother proud of you." And so, in a sense, she was, um, she didn't really have a chance, Mary Shelley. I mean, she was surrounded by fantastically strong writers and fantastically strong ideas.
3: And so she's being primed for literary creation in a way, is she, by, yes, by yes. parenthood and her to be. Yes. Um,
1: and,
3: and when she talks about being a quiet, a listener, quiet or a silent listener, but it's very much the idea that she is just absorbing the ideas and recording, memorising the conversations between... Byron and Shelley, and hearing Polidori's ideas as well, yes. it took a to This is what him.
1: she says, and she describes in the um, in the introduction she wrote to the 1831 edition of um, Frankenstein, which was the edition that came out 15 years after it was first published in 1818. About <laughs> something we must talk about, um, she describes in a very evocative, in a very evocative, vivid, vivid, almost filmic way. Um, Sitting, listening into conversations between, she says, Byron and Shelley. But actually, the conversations were between Polidori and Shelley because Polidori recorded them in his journal, mm. didn't we? He, he about um, about scientific experiments,
4: the and life force. And yes, like that. yes.
1: Yeah. vermicelli in a glass. Yeah remember, which came to, um, which then started moving. And so it was, can you remember more of that? No,
4: I mean, I, I remember only that they had an argument that if, if the life force was in any sense electric and could be added to and taken away from, then death couldn't be permanent because you can add life and you can take away yes. life. And so the, the death state would just be a kind of zero bank balance that you could later uh, adjust. And I think that feeds into yeah. the idea of Frankenstein yeah. fairly naturally. Oh, sure.
1: And also, it just sounds like exactly the kind of conversation you have late at night when you're a bit drunk. Right. You know? <laughs> right.
3: <laughs> so unsurprisingly, all of these, these bad dreams have come out of late-night conversations between quite highly strong youth, shall we yes. say. Yes. Um, and, and Mary is, is attuned to this somehow. Yes. Yes. Um, what is actually written at, at the time? What, what, what dates from, from the summer and, and the, uh, the rest of the year? Do we, do we know exactly when what was written? And there's a complicated story about Byron and Polidori and the origins of a vampire. And that's right, isn't it?
4: Yeah, I mean, so my... uh, I don't think that much was written. Uh, Byron, I think, wrote a fragment which Polidori took up. Polidori couldn't think of anything. That was part of his problem. And one of my interests in Byron, and this may sound a a weird way of going about it, was that I'm interested in failure. And I'm interested in, in those moments in people's lives when they decide whether or not the place they have made for themselves and the world can adequately express their sense of who they are. And part of the problem with Byron is that he was such a success that everyone around him had to suffer from the comparisons. Uh, My best example of what he was, any fans of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy here? So Byron was Zaphod Beeblebrox. (laughs) And uh, Zaphod Beeblebrox is the guy who when they put him into, I think it's called something like the ultimate perspective chamber. which is a a device that lets you know exactly how small you are in the scale of the universe, and it destroys everybody because what you get is a little point, you are here, and then the vast galaxies around you. Except for Zaphod, who turns out to be at the center of the universe (laughs) and walks out feeling great. So Byron was not only the most famous poet of his age and in some respects the handsomest man of his age and a lord who inherited a ruin at a time when the Gothic was the coolest thing to be involved and in. he also got to sleep with his sister. <laughs> <laughs> um, he slept with everybody. And so all around you, you have to cope with the fact that there's this guy sucking the dra- life to the dregs and here are you. And I think one of the very curious things about this, this summer is that the famous people produce nothing of note. Mm. But Mary Shelley wrote the most famous book to come out of it. And honestly, how many of you have read Child Harold's Pilgrimage in this room? Oh, Lord. Hang on. We're not looking at double figures. (laughs) I I take it all back. And how many have read Frankenstein? How many have seen some form of the vampire movie? So one of the curious things about this whole summer is that every interaction was predicated on the fact that Byron was the famous guy and Mm. that Shelley was the next most famous. And everything that came out of it proved that the people who had been ignored and slighted produced the things of of note.
1: Yes, yes. But there's something else that's really strange about this summer. And that's, I mean, people have been celebrating all year the 200th anniversary of, of the birth of Frankenstein. It was 2000, obviously 1816, and we're now 2016. But Frankenstein was published in 1818. So what we're actually celebrating isn't... Anything really? We're celebrating the twinkle in her eye. We're celebrating mm. a scene of conception. We're celebrating the birth of an idea. There's no other book <laughs> where we, <laughs> we would celebrate the birth of right. idea right. This is the centenary of when Shakespeare had the idea yeah. to write Hamlet, and so we sort of were obsessed with the origin of this book, which is itself obsessed with the idea of origins. And it's impossible. I know from from teaching Frankenstein, you can't engage with the novel at all. You have to engage with the scene of the novel's production, which is itself a myth. And one of the things that's mythical about it is the idea that it was born in a, in a ghost story competition. Competition? There's no mention anywhere of competition. Polidori says nothing about a competition. Mary Shelley says nothing about a competition. It's been made up. It's like an urban myth, and so somehow we've sort of we've got that, we've got it into our heads that there's some sort of ghost story competition, which there wasn't. Brian just said, "Let's just let's, you know, the weather's particularly bad about which we must talk. So let's um, let's write something." That was all, and um, I think it's um, I think it's fascinating that we've turned this weekend into a kind of primal scene scene where we, we can't stop, like a child gazing into a sort of scene of conception between the parents. We can't stop peeping. We're watching, like Mary Shelley's watchery, we're watching this scene of creation. And the only thing that's been lifted from Frank, Frank, Frankenstein itself and returned to in all the movies made at the film is the scene of creation. Everything else has been discarded. It's just the lightning bolt and the monster sitting up.
3: So we're kind of transfixed by that phenom- meteorological phenomenon, I suppose. Yes. But you, you, you mentioned the weather there. What about that and, and, what el- and how it informs the novel as a whole? What are we missing by being blinded by that lightning? And lightning I think moment? we
1: have to take very literally the fact, would you agree with this, um, Ben, that this group of people genuinely saw themselves as living in, a, in an apocalyptic age? Because... I mean, imagine how extraordinary the, uh, how extraordinary it was that the sun had been blotted out by darkness. the um, the, the The volcanic eruption in Indonesia had created extra in, 18, in spring of eighteen sixteen had created an extraordinary series of. Clouds.
0: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost fifty pounds. Only at Sleep Number stores or SleepNumber.com. Ready
2: to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to Bluenile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at Bluenile.com for $50 off. Bluenile.com code LISTEN.
1: Climactic changes was, right? I mean, the snow fell in, um, in New York in, in June 1816. The sun was just blotted out in Geneva. Crops hadn't grown. There you know, was starvation. Um, no, it was a very, it was a very serious crisis. And they, the, this was a group of Shelley. Had, um, Shelley was an atheist. Now Shelley didn't believe in a god. Byron was kind of on the verge here. This was a world which looked like it was properly, genuinely going to end.
3: And what Byron did. Produce what he did succeed in writing reflects exactly it was that, darkness.
1: You know. So it was interesting that um, Ben was talking about *Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy* because the poem that Byron—I mean—we talk about Byron's um, Byron's contribution to the so-called ghost story competition as being this fragment of a vampire story that he discarded and then Polidori picked up and turned it into the earliest what we recognise now as the modern vampire story, which is the urbane, elegant byronic vampire but I, which was then picked up by bram stoker turned into dracula obviously but what byron actually produced was this extraordinary poem darkness which i think is by a country mile his strongest strangest poem
3: thing, could, could you give do you a
4: bit of it
1: well actually i do have it on. ah.
4: <laughs> here's one you made earlier
1: <laughs> it's ve- it's very long but i thought i'd give you just a couple of couple of lines from it Because you'll see instantly how strange they are and how very in keeping they are with Frankenstein. Remember that Mary Shelley, when she described um, in her introduction to uh, uh, the writing of Frankenstein, she said that it came to her as a waking dream. And here is um, the first few lines of darkness. I had a dream which was not all a dream. The bright sun was extinguished, and the stars did wander darkling in the eternal space, rayless and pathless, and the icy earth swung blind and blackening in the moonless air. Morn came and went and came, and brought no day. I think we had to take that quite literally. And at the end, these are my favourite lines. Byron's describing being the two men left on earth. You know, the world has ended; the sun's been extinguished. There are two men left on earth, and they're natural enemies, and they fight each other. And then he says, and he describes them, it's almost like hell. And one of the things I find fascinating is that when, when, um, when Shelley signed his name in, um, in hotel guest books, before he got to Villa, Villa Diodati, he signed himself as Ma- Mad Shelley. And when, they said, um, when he had to sign what his destination was, he said, hell, my destination's hell. Which it sort of was, given the weather. It was heaven and hell. And then um, Byron describes this hellish scene of um, these two men left alone on earth kind of shaking their fists. And he says... And on their brows they have famine, had written fiend, fiend. And he says, The world was void. The populace and the powerful was a lump. Senseless, herbless, treeless, manless, lifeless. A lump of death. A chaos of hard clay. Which is more or less how... Mary Shelley describes you know the birth of the monster built made out of clay. Mm-hmm. So there's this this extraordinarily apocalyptic poem these people didn't see themselves as having some kind of fun holiday. No, it's
4: not. You no know, they were for, for they were the
1: people in the apocalyptic world. Mm.
4: I think I think there was some fun. I mean I think part they of the char- part fun. of the charm of it is this overlap between the casual and the profound isn't it? And uh, the reason that we obsess about that summer. You know, we've had good holidays in the past. <laughs> and you might even and there 's even the phrase that that was a famous holiday, but right? that was a great holiday, and of course, their local particular famous holiday among friends turned out to be one of the most famous holidays that anyone has ever had, but there
1: was such bad tensions they all sort of
4: there were i mean but also so Polidori made a nuisance of himself and he challenged Shelley to a duel, I think at, at one point, and Shelley just laughed, and byron said um, don 't do that again because I will take you up on it." Um, and there are other little things. Paladore, because he felt excluded from this inner circle, increasingly clamored for attention. And Byron, at one point, said of him that Paladore was exactly the kind of man who, if he fell overboard while you were boating and he couldn't swim and he reached towards you, you would hold out a straw
0: to, to, see, if, to see if the old <laughs> adage be true that
4: drowning men clutch at straws. <laughs> and... At the same time, you have Mary probably with a bit of a crush on Byron, Byron resuming his relationship with Claire Claremont, which he didn't really want to do. He has this great line about it. That's the trouble with Byron, even when he's being an asshole. He could put it so wittily. So his line about Claire Claremont following him all the way from London.
1: She pranced all the way across Europe.
4: (laughs) One could hardly play the Stoic. Yeah. with a woman who had scrambled eight hundred miles to unphilosophize one. It's so brilliant. <laughs> uh, and so while all this stuff is going on, they're sort of having affairs and crushes and jealousies and pissing each other off in all the ways that you do. But part of you know when you're young, your friends are archetypes, right? There's the sensitive one and the cool one and the lovely one and the kind one and the foolish one. And you believe in these archetypes and later on you realize that they're all one form of mediocrity or another. Yeah. Oh, you've met my friends. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but Mary was terrible. Mary was jealous of Claire, her half sister, who seemed to be having some kind of relationship with Shelley as well. And Polidori seemed to. My sense was that Polidori had a crush on Mary. He writes about mm-hmm. her very yes, gently, yes, doesn't he?
4: She maybe have been kind to him in a way. I think the she's others,
1: the only one who was. The others were not. Yeah. And so there were all sorts of um, all sorts of strange alliances here. And um, which added, which made a very thick atmosphere. Yes, I think plus lots of laudanum was taken. I think <laughs> that might have
3: helped. Ben's going to ask you about imposture in this in this context. I mean, this is uh, obviously a, a, an imaginary version of Polidori, yeah. but it's based quite closely on the idea that he's, he is besotted with Byron in some sense, as well as anyone else, and takes up this. Supposed fragments so, d- d-
4: of his. One of, one of the reasons all this interested me is, and to come back to basketball, my first job coming out of college was playing minor league pro basketball in Germany, and I sucked, otherwise I wouldn't be here today. <laughs> and part of what's upsetting about sucking as a basketball player is that the hierarchy on the court dominates life off the court, too. So the best player gets to make the jokes and decide where you eat, and has, it wins all the arguments, and this is just how it functions. Now, the great thing about basketball is that I could go back to my team paid for apartment and read my Jerome K. Jerome and feel like a full human being because it was only basketball. But one of the questions I wanted to ask myself in this book is, what does it mean to write worse than somebody? Since writing is a skill that should measure the whole of the personality, what does it mean to be a worse writer than somebody? And this is really the story of Polidori. He has high hopes. He's young. He's handsome. He's well-connected. He gets to serve as the physician to the most famous poet of the age, and what he comes up against again and again and again, he can't do it as well as they can. Does that mean he's a lesser soul? Does that mean he's less of a human being than they are? Now, the curious upshot of this weekend, of course, is that the story Palladori writes, The Vampire, eventually gets published three years later anonymously by something called The New Monthly Magazine with a heavy hint that it's by Byron. And so this whole story has been, the Polidori story has been about the fact that he can't write as well as Byron. He has to come to terms with it. That so way. it has
1: been a ghost story contest, has if you like. Been, it has been a writing contest. It has been, right,
4: right. For him, it has been. Yeah. And then the vampire comes out, and it's a sensation. And Goethe calls it Byron's masterpiece, as if all along the difference between them had been phony, and that Polidori was as great a soul as Byron. Of course, he wasn't. So that's the sort of interest in the Polidori story that I had.
3: And, and of course the vampire has yes. this incredible legacy and life. That's a very odd thing to come out of. They, you know, hinting that it's Byron.
4: Well, and, 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 and I guess in some sense Byron is the originator, not just mm-hmm. of the initial idea, but the, the, the appeal of the vampire story really is that to be attracted to somebody is to be attracted to death. Right? Yeah. That's, that's the appeal of it. And even before Byron sketched out the vampire what people felt around him is that to be attracted to him was to be attracted to their own destruction, and Claire Claremont was.
1: Yes, and then, but there was also a, a sense as well in which, um, because Byron was now in exile, he could no longer control what was said about him mm. back yeah. in England. And, um, and one of the things that was said about him was that Byron was a vampire. Mm-hmm. And so people thought, there were readers who thought, it's just not, am I wrong here? Did I make this up? There were readers who thought that Byron had... This was just a fragment of autobiography, that Byron yes. was writing about himself yes. as a vampire. Yes. And so Byron wrote this letter home from Geneva saying, what do I know about vampires? You know, I've been called so many things. I've been called a vampire as if I would write about myself as a vampire. <laughs> but in a, I mean, in a sense, it was a vampiric weekend. They were all sucking the life energies out of each other anyway.
4: In fact, true, I think yes. there were a lot of tourists looking at them through eyeglasses. They were,
1: telescopes.
4: telescope, Byron said yes. <laughs> yeah. By you couldn't go out the door without being paparazzi yes. in, in some form. <laughs>
1: there were people on the <laughs> other side of the lake with very powerful telescopes. <laughs> yes. Weren't they,
4: English uh, watching boobies, them? I think, was the phrase. <laughs>
1: yeah. you know, yeah, Get away right. from the English
3: boobies and escape.
1: <laughs> yes.
3: Um, yeah. um, and and meanwhile, in parallel with the vampire, well, not exactly the same, but there is Frankenstein. And you did say earlier we should maybe think about this as two and as as maybe a kind of antidote for uh, to fetishizing 1816 itself and the originary moment. What what actually happens with Frankenstein with Frank after that?
1: Well, nothing. <laughs> I mean, she doesn't. No writing takes place in 1816 at all. So we're celebrating nothing. <laughs> she thinks of. Um, she says that she um, she thinks of a story and she can't think of anything. And then two years later, this this story this story emerges that Shelley seems to have had. A strong hand in. The initial preface to Frankenstein was Mary Shelley concedes entirely written by Shelley himself, and that gives, and, and that preface is, if you like, an outer frame to what's already a frame story. What Mary Shelley does in Frankenstein, as you know, is tell a story inside a story inside a story. It's Walton telling the story told to him by victim Frankenstein, which contains the story told to him by um, by, um, it, the, by the creature. And then Shelley adds a frame, saying, "This story came to me," It's, i.e., Mary. Shelley during this weekend and then he describes the kind of the non-existent competition and then in 1831 15 years later when a new edition comes out Mary Shelley adds another frame you know adding even more drama this time with the kind of moon coming through the shutters as she's as she's writing it the story itself seemed god there are so I mean the story itself takes you right into the seabed of her psyche I mean, she, th- she talks about it as having been born of listening to conversations about science. Well, maybe, but my God, the story of a, a, a child who, um, who kills the parent, the parent who kills the mm-hmm. child, that's her. Yeah. That's well, her story.
3: Well beyond just stories about science. Yes. Right yeah,
1: yeah. And that's, that's why we can't let it go. It's a story that has assimilated itself, but not assimilated itself in our culture entirely. I mean, we can't stop retelling it, domesticating it,
2: if you like.
3: But, and but, unlike, sorry, to, 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 yeah. I hope to pick up on that, um, unlike the vampire being a sort of instant hit, maybe under that assumed name, um, Frankenstein wasn't, was it? Um, no. But it relied in a way on the travesting of that extraordinary yeah. story. No,
1: what, I mean, what we should celebrate is in five years' time, the the, the, the success of Frankenstein, because it, the first five 500 copies of Frankenstein were sold in the first five years. So it was published in 1818. It made absolutely no impact at all. Published, you know, anonymously. Very, very strange story. And then five years after 1818, there was the first stage performance. Mary Shelley had no copyright at all. And so, you know, any old person took her book and turned it into, you know, turned it into a play. She got, I mean, her name wasn't attached to it. She got no royalties for it. She got no money. She got no recognition. But Frankenstein went stratospheric. And then in the, for the rest of her, during the rest of her lifetime, there were 26 further stage productions of Frankenstein. Mm. Again, she got absolutely no, I and mean, she got no money for this or or recognition. So it had been, you know, she had become, you know, she created the monster. Mm. And so mm. the story strangely sort of told, told itself, like again, It just again got repeated again.
3: in a new version. But she does go on writing, of course. I mean, I think The Last Man is something I yeah. connect with this, this time as well, obviously with Byron. Writing in a mature way that maybe hasn't caught on in, 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 you know, cultural The Last Man
1: seems to be a novel that she lifted out of darkness, Mm -hmm. out of Byron's poem "Darkness." It's a science fiction novel about being the 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 last the last man on Earth. So we were talking about the weekend as being a sort of a a bohemian utopia, if you like, in this in Geneva, which was which was an Enlightenment utopia, but it created dystopian fiction.
3: Uh, and, And. I suppose about her, she, she's the survivor, isn't she, of the group? She gets to revisit the villa.
1: Yeah, she's the last woman. She's
3: the last
1: woman,
4: yeah. yeah she's the survivor. I think it's was eight years later, Byron was dead. Yeah. Six years later, Shelley was dead. I think three or four years later, Polidori killed himself. Yeah. The child that Claire Claremont had by Byron, Allegra, he put into a convent, took away from her, and then she died.
2: Yeah.
4: Um, Claire lived a long time and got to feature in the aspirin papers by Henry James. But yeah, that's, uh, yeah. So it's the women who really survived the story and the men didn't.
1: Yes.
3: I feel yes, there's a moral there, sad. but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, instead of pursuing that, because we could go on talking about this, it's that time when I, I think I'm going to ask if anyone here has anything to add, a question, or a quick comment of their own. There is a micro, a tolls that will do the rounds, if anyone does have something to say. Uh, do not be shy, say something, ask a question. Otherwise, I will just go on asking questions of my own. They might not relate to 1816 at all. I could see a hand. One gentleman understood the threat there implicitly. Uh, Conversation about Brexit or something. uh, (laughs) Thank you very much. (laughs) Can I? You you say that um,
4: when she, Mary Shelley, was there in 1816, she didn't write Frankenstein. When did she write it? When did she actually? Because the the manuscript is is
3: beautiful, isn't it? There's no crossings out or anything. It's just as if it was coming from a dictation or something. When did she actually sit down and write it?
1: There are three manuscripts. There's um, the first one, the 1818 manuscript, which um, isn't, isn't usually reprinted now. And then she, um, she made two other, two other drafts. And so the one we read is, um, is a very amended one, which is the 1831 edition. I think she wrote it when they returned to England. When they returned to England after the summer of 1816, um, three catastrophic things happened. The first was that Mary Shelley's sister, who seems to have been in love with Shelley, killed herself by taking an overdose of of laudanum. Almost simultaneously, Shelley's wife, Harriet, killed herself, pregnant, heavily pregnant, with someone's child, not Shelley's, by drowning herself in a serpentine. And thirdly, Shelley and Mary Shelley got married. And they settled themselves in... um, as best they could, given that they seem to be death. You know, they seem to bring death everywhere. they they settled themselves down in a in a house in in Marlow, and I think she sat down and wrote Frankenstein then. And so she was written really in eighteen in eighteen seventeen, and then, and heavily influenced by by the experience, obviously, of being in Geneva, because it's set in you know it's set in Geneva. Course and um, and it's set amongst glaciers and it begins and ends in this glacial landscape.
3: Thank you very much. Anyone else um, to chip in the stage? Oh, there's a lady at the back, and then a gentleman just in. Oh, um, I know you said that that there the are great psychological depths into it, and even though it was apparently inspired by science, but there was a lot of science in it, wasn't there? I
1: mean, they are, they were completely. I mean, actually, you know this much better than I do. How much were they inspired by the recent developments and technological developments? Well, there is a, uh, there is a suggestion that um, the name Frankenstein comes from Benjamin Franklin, you know, <laughs> who was um, doing scientific experiments. So I think I mean, the idea of the mad scientist was everywhere in the Romantic era. There was mad scientists everywhere you looked. And it was all going on in, um, all going on in Bristol, you know, the sort of testing out of um, um, laughing gas, et so cetera. I've written some mad scientists down, actually, so just in case got that question. There's, um, so there was Humphrey Davy experimenting with effects of laugh, laughing gas. A scientist called David Pritchett injecting hookworms under his skin to test his immune responses scientist called Stubbins Firth who rubbed black vomit into his eyeballs to test whether um, yellow fever was contagious. I mean, there were um, there were you couldn't throw a stone without hitting a mad scientist.
3: And This is, the age, this is Edward Jenner as well, isn't it? Is is um, becoming famous for a vaccine, for his smallpox vaccination yes. at
1: the time. and there, um, didn't Mary uh, Mary Shelley's son, baby son, had H- that had vaccination happened. in Geneva? Sorry. and so there, this was a um, this was an age where people incredibly interested in science, and there was a thin line between kind of, if you like, al- alchemy and science.
4: Right. It, was, it was also a feature, I think, of Shelley's sensibility that he could include scientific thoughts among the poetic ones. Yes. There's no other poet of the age, I think, who could, and or of subsequent ages, maybe. Um, but I can imagine that in their household, these things bled into each other in a way that they would not have elsewhere.
1: Yes.
3: So that's, um, I think that's a good question. Sorry, there's another one, just a uh,
4: gentleman there. Was the Elysian
3: dream by the lake space to last only just the summer or was it a long-term project that's a good question can
1: you say was it, did they want to stay there longer
3: I mean did they have a long-term project to remain by the lake living this wonderful dream existence or was it just for the summer
1: That's interesting. What what do you think?
4: I don't think it... I I don't know, but I can't imagine that it would have extended very long. Byron travelled around. Also, it wasn't his Elysian dream. He was the famous guy who got to rent the big house and he was going to go elsewhere. He was
1: living the nightmare as well, wasn't he? he,
4: Post-separation. Yes, yes. he was
1: traumatised.
4: I mean, The reason he originally brought Polidori along is because he thought he would have psychological problems that Polidori could help him with. And then it turned out that Polidori was madder than he was. (laughs) But I can't, I don't think that, Byron might be puzzled to hear us talking about it in these terms because none of it mattered that much to him. And in fact, poetically, it was a bit of a dead end. The Shelley influence was not the influence that he ended up taking up. He became a very different, much more sort of Pope-like poet. um, They they, they
3: all drift away, don't they? That's how the summer ends. There's no official closing up of shop and making sure you get your deposit back. They kind of go and and he's heading to Don Duan. But they
1: all met again. I mean, they all met again in Italy. Wait. But two years later, but, I mean, their lives were their lives were tangled up in each other endlessly. From now on,
4: Byron's and Shelley's. I mean, yes. he, he kicked Paladore out. He sent him home because Paladore was just too much of a nuisance. Um, and then Byron de- defended Shelley after Shelley's death. Shelley got a lot of attacks for being an atheist, but Byron defended him in terms that made me think that the friendship wasn't as deep as it sometimes gets made mm. out to be.
1: Mm. the friendship with Mary Shelley was deeper.
4: She got stuck copying out passages, I think, from Don Juan. Yes. Um, after she- I mean, part of the problem that happened after Shelley's death is that Shelley had enlisted Byron to help out Lee Hunt in a publication to be called The Liberal. Mm-hmm. And Lee Hunt had the great advantage over Byron's actual publisher, John Murray, that Hunt was willing to go to jail for his publications. And Murray had balked at publishing what he thought was blasphemous in Don Juan. And then to be nice to Mary Shelley, Byron gave her some copying work to do so after Shelley's death he honored his co- his commitment to the liberal and got in trouble for it
1: yes
3: another lesson for us uh, is anyone else uh,
4: <laughs> don't get involved in publications yes yeah. small market literary publications we'll testify to that
3: yeah. <laughs> um, I think if that's it I'm um, I was going to ask you one more question. What was it? Oh, and yeah. So yeah, they, I've forgotten. Of course, they go and they, they meet again. So this is just yeah. the yeah. beginning, in a way, for yeah. it, isn't it? We we've been calling it. This
1: is the primal scene. So this is the primal <laughs> scene, and there's
3: more biographically, there's more in a literary way to um, to come. Distinguishing this moment, there is also that you know, kind of sense of the, the, the weather, as it were, and the, the moments that they have fallen into, in personal terms. You know, Byron uh, you know described as being on the run. Um, and being very young as, as well, um, what I wanted to ask you was was really about what difference it would have me- it would have made if they hadn't really met. Are we saying that there would be no there would be no Frankenstein, there would be no vampire? Byron had gone sailing on his way with Polidori, kicked him out later. Many things would have happened. I mean, the the, the cross current meeting, the, the currents meeting at this point is what is necessary for these works to come about, even if. Frankenstein isn't written at exactly that, at that point. Is that fair, to say? It sounds plausible to me.
1: God, we have a world without Hammer Horror. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <That's> <laughs> Is that better or worse? <laughs> I just want to return, because a second, I mm-hmm. just wanted to return to the question about science. And it's a very... I mean, when we talk about Frankenstein now, it's entirely in terms of how much science should interfere in nature... And I think that there has, there has been a huge impact of, um, Frankenstein has made a huge impact um, precisely because we've, uh, it raises questions of medical ethics. And would we have people like Bruce Janner now, you know, without, um, without Frankenstein?
3: So, yeah, It's a
1: question, it is a, it, you can read it as a novel entirely about um, designer bodies. We're living in a Frankenstein world now
3: that's right our interest is in both the mad scientist and the creation i mean there's yes. that famous you know the, the classic mix-up yeah. over calling the monster frankenstein you yes. combine the two but they're, they're they're with us in a different way so there's
1: that woman who's had endless endless plastic surgery they call her bride of wildenstein and um, who she can't she's got some sort of addiction to having her having her face done so i i think the book's becoming more and more and more
3: relevant. And their, their time never is in no way just 1816, it's, it's now too. Yes. Thank you very much for coming along. If you could join me in thanking our speakers, Francis Wilson and Benjamin Marcus.
2: Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of our 2016 London Lit Weekend mini series. Until the normal weekly podcast resumes on January 5th, you can catch up, of course, on previous episodes and visit our website, the-tls.co.uk. There's plenty there to keep you busy. And you can do all the usual too, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook and review us on iTunes. See you in 2017.